if you're going to have a certain type of event with this audience profile in these types of locations, this is probably what you need. We know that at a triathlon, for example, we'll see one between one and 2% of the population. That's a pretty big range though, Jeff, between one and two, right? And so what do you prepare for? So we decide we're going to prepare for 5%. So we're going to take that number, anticipated number, we're going to double it, and we're going to give ourselves another 10% buffer because we want to have some additional ability to deal with the unexpected, right? And the unexpected are going to be stuff that we can forecast. We may be able to forecast in the short term, but we need to react to on the day. Because what people forget is events are live. They're then and there, there's no delay. If the event goes off and it starts going, there's very, very, uh, there's a lot of reluctance to, to, to cancel it, right? Once it goes. So then we need to be prepared for the outcome. This one's for those of you looking for a relatively untapped field in health tech. What does it take to predict the unpredictable and make sure that those who make it to an event make it out well? Welcome back to How It's Met, the podcast where we chat with people shaping the future of healthcare and health tech. On this podcast, we chat with founders, funders, and your occasional teacher-turned-actuary-turned-medical-systems manager so that you too can learn from their secrets, skills, and experiences so you can be better equipped to make your impact on healthcare. Let's get started. So we mentioned the fact that 70% of the work is done before you actually see any patients, before the event happens. How did you figure this all out? Was it just as you go along, as you learned, or was there, I guess, any particular inciting instant? There's a lack of research in the mass gathering medicine field. So if you go out and type mass gathering medicine into Google, find that you'll find very shallow data. There's a few worldwide organizations that do promote the collection of data. One of the limitations in our industry, because it's still in its infancy, you're like, hey, bring a large group of people into a specific space for a specific purpose. There's going to be healthcare needs. How do we respond to those healthcare needs? So certainly for me, when we started looking at something, there was a lack of data. There's no, there's no data to say, hey, how, how many, if you have this number of people, how many ambulances, doctors, nurses do you need? So we built that through knowledge-based exchange with people that have done it before us. So looking at past iterations, we know that at a triathlon, for example, we'll see one between one and 2% of the population. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty big range though, Jeff. And so what do you prepare for? We're going to take that number, anticipated number, we're going to double it, and we're going to give ourselves another 10% buffer because we want to have some additional ability to deal with the unexpected. We may be able to forecast in the short term, but we need to react to on the day. Because what people forget is events are live. If the event goes off, uh, there's a lot of reluctance to, to, to cancel it, right? Mm -hmm. Is the main barrier to innovation in mass gathering medicine the lack of access to large swaths of data with which people can work? Or are there already innovations that are being developed or have been developed by other groups? that have access to data from more concentrated settings. Yeah, so let's let's go over let's go over the recent pandemic if you don't mind as an example. For the first year was the lack of data. We had no data. We didn't understand transmission rate, okay. we didn't understand consequence. But in year 2 of the pandemic we got better because people agreed to share information. Some events don't want to tell you the number. They don't want to share that because they don't want to admit to people come and get hurt at their event. Right? 
So there's this, there's not a secretive nature, but there's an unwillingness to disclose it because the willingness to disclose draws attention to it. Think back to your childhood. If your parents had the stats and the data to, of injury for every event that you wanted to attend, they might have been like, no, Jeff, you're not going to that event because the chances of you being injured are elevated. Right. So yeah, there, there are multiple barriers at hand that prevent systematic innovation in the space that really allows one consolidated group from being able to siphon up all the data and then build a model specifically that would allow for prediction of what resources need to be deployed. That really, to me, correct me if I'm wrong, would seem to be kind of the, the, the holy grail of mass gathering medicine, being able to put in various factors that you think your event would have and then essentially spit out what exact resources do you need to prevent risk at what percentage certainty, correct? And then look at it, look at the roots and the, the parallels of mass gathering medicine to disaster medicine, mm-hmm. right? So you have an upcoming disaster. We've got wildfires in Canada. We've got tsunamis in other parts of the world. And the answer is, is there a coordinated response based on a data set? Probably not because we don't, there's too many variables. What we know what we know from disaster medicine is that there are some correlative pieces that you could use to baseline it, but there's so much uncertainty with the way that the incident unfolds, right? And at, at, at an incident hitting a low population, low, low structured environment where you've got one, two story buildings that are made out of less heavy natural materials versus hitting somebody where you're a massive urbanite, urban center. And now you've got large structures collapsing. So the, the environmental factors in both of those environments really make it difficult to say, Hey, we've had a, we've had a, a, a tsunami. We've had a, we've had tornadoes hit. We've had different types of natural disasters. Can we understand the predictability of the night, the nature of injury? The answer is no. We know there's going to be some hard people, right? So we're going to go at it in a phased response. Our job at the mass gathering level is to try to predict that in a better way. So correlative data with our colleagues in the space who are willing to share. D, identifying the data. So through the studies that are out there, there's a limited number of studies that are out there that are de-identified data where we talk about music festivals or running events or triathlons without identifying what they're. But anybody that's in the space will know exactly who you're talking about. That's the nature. It's like all this cloak and dagger stuff is like, I know what event that is because I can, I've, I've read that I know the space, right? So what is the benefit of all of like the, the, all of this from a perceived lack of willingness to share? And really there's nobody that has a mandate. That's the other problem. Who has a mandate because every jurisdiction in Canada treats events in a different way, right? Some, they just submit a permit, tell us what you're doing and go ahead. Others are very restrictive. Right. And the very restrictive environments are hyper regulated. If there's rules, there's regulations, things, it tends to be that the events will go away from those areas because there's hyper regulation. Mm-hmm. So when we were younger, we might choose to engage in activities that we knew what, we knew what trends houses we could go and do certain things. If I'm being generalized, um, and we knew the ones where we didn't go to same thing from an environment. You just kind of know where the thresholds are of the behavior and the activity of the guests that you intend to interact with. Mm-hmm. All right. And event medicine or mass gathering medicine has such a wide range of applicability in the world because what do you consider an event, right? Mm-hmm. 10 people trying to attempt, to attempt a world record might be an event. 50,000 people coming to a concert is an event in my mind. So even the mere definition of what constitutes an event versus a regular part of routine business, right? Mm-hmm. 
I, I think all of this makes me wonder whether or not the space is ripe for uh, health innovation as it's been portrayed on this podcast overall. Because we've talked about medical devices, medical software that deal with very well-defined medical problems. While there are clear-cut stories that come from some of the events, it seems like that information is either very siloed or very disparate or non-replicable. And the ingredients to really create a replicable system that reflects innovation as it's normally seen, those aren't there just quite yet. However, the innovation that is being done is done reactively and to what extent could be done proactively uh, by humans uh, because that's just what we have right now. Is that a correct assessment? It's it's a brilliant assessment of somebody that's taking an objective view as where's the, where's the merger of technology. We have become such a technologically dependent society. Jack, you and I, in the middle of our in the middle of our podcast, my internet decides to say, "Oh, I'm going to take a break," and now and and we we come back, we regen, and now we're back where we were, right? So the reliance of technology. I give you three examples. One is let's talk about a digital healthcare record. Sounds pretty simple, right? You have a tablet. I see Jeff, the patient. I input some information. I put that record into the cloud. The Canadian government still hasn't figured out how to make an electro affordable electronic health record. So, so how is Honesty Medical going to figure out? There's EPCR programs out. Oh, there's lots of them. They're expensive. They're clumsy. They're reliant on internet. What's EPCR? Uh, sorry, an electronic patient care record. So gotcha. in the field, sorry, in the, in the, in the sort of pre-hospital care environment, an EPCR or PCR patient care record is simply our formal documentation. So we're at a site that doesn't have reliable internet yet. So my EPCR, my electronic patient care record system is actually untenable to use it because we don't have access to reliable internet. So how can your system, how can the teams, how can the world innovate? To accomplish that when some of the baseline expectations, you know, we're a Google based company. Okay. The day the internet goes down the office, I send everybody home, like go home, go find internet somewhere because we have become so reliant on that. By a recent case, we had a case where a patient was, uh, was in VFA. So they were in cardiac arrest. Uh, we deployed a defibrillator. We utilized the defibrillator. And if you understand that the technology behind a defibrillator, it will take an ECG. It will have a strip built in the system. Do you think it, it doesn't print it out? It gets stored in a data on a data card inside a device. That device needs to be transported. It needs to be scanned, read, downloaded, and transmitted. Like that all sounds like it's an easy process, but it's not, it's not. the automated external defibrillators on an event somewhere. Our office is somewhere. And the clinician that wants the data is somewhere. And all this seems to feel like it needs to happen in real time. So now we're having to take great technological um, leaps of faith that we're going to be able to get that data transmitted in time. Is it changing the immediate outcome of the patient? Probably not. I mean, at that point, you've treated the patient. This is retrospective data to help the clinician paint a picture. All of that is very, very reliant on technology. It's tech heavy. Um, so be able to have those systems in place as a private company is quite challenging. It's expensive because, you know, let's not get started on data in Canada, right? And how much it costs just to transmit packets of data where the rest of the world has figured out to do it for next nothing. We're having to pay multiple multiples of hundreds of dollars per month just to keep our systems connected, right? 
And then the the education piece is how do you teach people that come and work for you for an instant in time the, the system that you're using? Because every system requires training and education and practice and then updates and tweaking. So we're always trying to leverage lightweight technology that's adaptable and nimble to the space that can be deployed in a variety of re- in a variety of spaces. So the value and the utilization of technology um, seems under, unsurmountable based on the size of our market. If mm-hmm. the state is 350 million people and Canada's maybe approaching 40 million people, I think it's coach higher than that. Like our volume of people to mobilize these sorts of systems and try them is almost deafening to figure out how you could do that. Don't have, we don't have the repetition to warrant the systems investigation, systems creation, architecture, and engineering. Right. Mm-hmm. I can dream all day about a, an electronic patient care record, but the simple fact of going to any open source program that doesn't reside their data in Canada create Nightmare. the challenge. Yeah. I have now put identifiable healthcare cool. data in a form, a Google form of that. I love Google, but, but I don't control where data, where Google puts the data. They bounce it amongst all of their servers, which is intrinsically why they're, why it's, it feels safe to a lot of people, but I would be, you know, there's some questionable processes in there to make sure that the data, the data is being held in that both secure and proper way. Mm-hmm. Right. And bit, and it becomes, it becomes big data at some point. The amassing of hundreds of events of the hundred events a year. I'm looking at our stack of physical papers forms, like, you know, charts. I've got, you know, 57 bankers boxes full of patient charts. I know that number because I just recently counted them. And it's like, what am I going to do with this? Because I have to keep these for 18 years. And you keep creating more, right? And that's, that's, a, that's a blessing in disguise. It's a sense of the, the accomplishment of the work that we're doing by treating and taking care of people. But at the same time, it's daunting because now I'm looking at all of these forms that I have to maintain integrity on hold for a long, long time. Help yeah. tech industry, help figure it out. Yeah, that's fair enough. Before we close off, you've yeah. highlighted an incredible amount of information about a space that may not be well known to many and highlighted the barriers to innovation in the way that we think of it that's very tech dependent. But you've also highlighted the ways in which you've innovated to make sure that you can think ahead of time and use human resourcefulness research relationships uh, to make sure you can think ahead of time and predict what preventative care looks like and make sure that people don't get ill when there is a risk that they do. Right. Um, is there anything that the listener can do to, I guess, support the work that you do? Or is there anything else that you want to plug at all? I think there's a few things that come to mind. One is there's a, there's, there's a movement afoot among some, some organize, race organizers to make the, the healthcare data accessible in a database at the choose at the, the choice of the participant so we have systems where if you're running a marathon on the back of the bib you could write if you had any medical concern um, and that's simply a black marker says jeff asthma right i think those education pieces really help to have people foster an understanding of the importance of uh, reflecting upon your own health before participation if you have a pre-existing condition Look for systems that allow you to echo that. That's one. Mm-hmm. Two, I think it would be a wonderful thing that people that participate in events understand the responsibility that they have towards fellow participants 
So this is kind of like the, the crowd mentality, which is if I see somebody in distress, how can I help, right? In cases where very well documented bystander initial CPR, um, you know, resuscitative efforts that made the difference of a positive versus a negative outcome. If I could stand up and say, how do we make cardiac safe events? How do we educate people to learn hands-only CPR, promote that, you know, wear a wristband that says, I'm willing to stop my race and help somebody if the situation arises. There's organizers that are promoting this sort of, we take care of each other. Uh, I would love to believe that in society that somebody collapsed in front of me, every single person that ran by would like stop and offer assistance. We know that that's not practical and it's not the right thing to do, uh, the spontaneous response, but you would not, you know, see somebody falter in a race or a foot marathon or a foot race. You'd stop and be like, Hey, are you okay? And if you go through social media, you'll see countless examples, right? Of people that offer assistance and are willing to interrupt their day to help somebody. Because I think people that are attracted to, help, to medicine, um, are people that come from helping professions or they come from helping experiences. They were dog walkers. They were camp counselors. They were lifeguards. They were people that were in helping professions are drawn towards medicine, right? Mm -hmm. There's lots of people out there that if asked will help, will help, right? They don't offer the help because sometimes they think somebody else is going to do it. The answer is let's just get on, you know, let's just get on with doing what we can for that person at the time. And then the help, the supportive help will come along and, and that. And, you know, I'm always interested in technological in innovations that are going to be palpable and cost effective because money of the things that we do when we adopt tech solutions is we have to transfer those costs to the, to the promoter, to the organizer, the person paying that, you know, paying the bills, so to speak. So we're always looking for solutions that are open source, that are innovative. But that actually have to solve a problem, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know how many to do apps I'm downloaded from the web, Jeff. Uh, probably, uh, you know, probably 50 of them. And at the end of the day, what am I trying to solve? I'm trying to solve a problem discipline, which is Kevin taking out a pad of paper and writing down what he has to do and putting a line through it. It's so very basic, but it's sometimes so difficult to do. So we get lured into believing that there's a tech solution out there for every problem that we have. And just as a civilian in life, that happens. Right. Then you got to call the call center and they say, well, Jeff, let's start at tech level one. But have you unplugged the machine? Yes, I, I've unplugged the machine and I've done all the things that I need to do. My point of all of that is to make sure that we're adopting the, the right technology, nimble and flexible. And then I think understanding the cost consequences that, well, for an event that happens once a year, there's not a, there's not a technology budget that makes sense. It's when you can overlay that across a landscape of events and everybody shares the cost. That's fair enough. All right. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.